Good evening um, and welcome to the South China Sea and Maritime Rules-Based Order, a Latrobe Asia webinar. I'm Nick Bisley and during the day I'm the Dean of Humanities and Social Sciences at Latrobe University. Uh, but this evening I'm helping out with my old team at Latrobe Asia. Uh, well, at least it's evening here in Melbourne. Um, I'd like to begin this event by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which Latrobe University's Melbourne campus sits, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging. I'd also like to express my respect to their people, both past and present, and to extend that respect to other Aboriginal Australians who are watching this webinar. A key part of Latrobe Asia's role is to engage the public in meaningful discussion about the region, to deepen our understanding and knowledge of Asia, and to make decisive interventions in public and policy debate. And the topic of this webinar fits squarely within this core remit. The South China Sea has been a hotly contested maritime zone for nearly a decade. It is a vital waterway through which the energy and commodities that power Asia's booming economies travel, and through which, in turn, many of the goods from factory Asia make their way to global markets. It's resource-rich resource both in terms of fisheries and hydrocarbon deposits, and it is a key strategic corridor. As a result of this, the complex and overlapping disputes in the sea relating to sovereignty, jurisdiction, and maritime rights, the name but three, are fights which matter to the region as a whole and not just to the claimants. But they are also a dispute about disputes, as the sea has become a central theatre in a competition about Asia's future international order. What are the differing approaches of regional powers to the South China Sea disputes? How are laws, norms and history being used and abused in this context? Can UNCLOS, the purported constitution of the seas, help navigate a path out of this morass? And what does the state of the South China Sea disputes tell us about Asia's future? So here with me to discuss these important questions are all, is our all-star panel. First, I'd like to introduce Greg Pauling, who joins us from Washington, D.C., where it is very, very early in the morning. Uh, Greg is the director of the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Greg, and I trust you've got a um, suitable supply of coffee. I do, yeah, thanks. Excellent. Um, our second guest this evening is Lynn Kwok. Uh, who comes to us from Singapore, where the sun is just about to set. Um, Lynn is the Shangri-La Dialogue Senior Fellow for Asia-Pacific Security at the International Institute for Strategic Studies at their, based at their Asia headquarters in Singapore. We're extremely pleased you can join us, Lynn. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Finally, Latrobe's very own Beck Strating, who is, of course, in Melbourne. Uh, Beck is the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia, uh, while she's on secondment from my very own School of Humanities and Social Sciences. Uh, welcome, and I should also say thank you for the opportunity to uh, have another go at my old job, one which is much more pleasant than my current one. Um, so there'll be an opportunity for the audience uh, to, to participate in questions and answer in the second half of this webinar, uh, for which we'll be using Slido. So please go to slido.com and enter the code R547, which you'll see conveniently indicated on the banner, which Beck is now imitating late 80s television game show host. Uh, to indicate that number. So uh, post your questions. Everyone can see them on Slido um, as the discussion is taking place. And you can also vote on questions uh, that other people have asked. And that helps us sort of push questions to the top of the list, which I'll then uh, select from and pitch to the uh, panel at the time. If you're having difficulties with Slido, so you want to ask a question, but for some reason you're not able to get onto it, uh, please email the Latrobe Asia team at Latrobe, sorry, at Asia, A-S-I-A, at latrobe.edu.au. So to our panel discussion, um, I'd like to kick off uh, things with you, Beck. 
you recently finished a monograph at the East West Centre on the South China Sea, which focuses in particular on non-claimant middle-ranking powers, including Japan, Australia, South Korea and India. Um, so let's start with some, some basic stuff. What, what is their stake in the dispute? They're not claimants. They don't have a direct call on in hydrocarbons, borders, sovereignties. Uh, but what's at stake in this dispute for them? Uh, yeah, thank you, uh, Nick. Thank you for uh, joining us back at La Trobe Asia for this evening. It's great to see you back in uh, the chairing role. And thank you, Greg and Lynn. It's great to uh, be on this panel with you, courtesy the uh, magic of Zoom. So I think I might start at the end of that question uh, around this uh, this kind of like-mindedness between these, these middle-ranking states that um, you were uh, discussing. So Japan, Australia, uh, Republic of Korea and India. Uh, so these are, um, you know, states, as you point out, uh, that are not direct claimants. They don't have a territorial claim in the South China Sea, uh, like a, a number of the maritime Southeast Asian states, and of course, China and Taiwan. Uh, yet they are described uh, in, in the, the US rhetoric uh, and, and the discourses of a number of states as being kind of like-minded uh, when it comes to their interests in the South China Sea. So this is the, the monograph that I wrote was really kicked off uh, or I, I was driven to write it because I was interested in how like-minded these states uh, really were when it came to when it comes to the South China Sea. And on the face of it, like-mindedness seems to be a kind of shorthand to describe uh, a, this group of states uh, that include traditional allies like Australia, Japan, and South Korea, but as well as regional partners such as. Uh, India. And it has a kind of narrative function in grouping these states together with the United States and some other, um, other states uh, outside of the region, such as UK or Canada, in opposition to challenges uh, to the regional status quo. So in other words, the like-minded term tries to exp express a shared concern, a shared stake uh, about what a rising and increasingly assertive China means uh, for the particular national interests of these states, for implications for regional and global order, and for the rules and the norms and the institutions that underpin those orders. So uh, it's kind of a useful but superficial piece of political rhetoric. And what I've been trying to do in my research is to understand more fully how willing uh, these regional states are to defend and to operationalise their vision of the maritime rules-based order, given uh, the sort of structural dynamics that are at play and their other national priorities and interests. So the South China Sea uh, disputes have been presented by these states as a kind of exemplar of China's efforts to revise the so-called rules-based order. And so the like-minded states, they share a general interest uh, I think, in maintaining a US-led status quo. But what my East-West Centre monograph tried to demonstrate was how they uh, approach this, the issue in very uh, different and specific ways, uh, including the fact that these states, while they might have um, some sort of stake in the stability of the region, the South China Sea, uh, you know, the, these states don't want to see this sort of escalating uh, the, the disputes escalating. So they have that kind of interest. There are uh, common uh, interests in ensuring that trade 
can continue through this waterway. Uh, but these states also have their own maritime concerns in other areas, such as the East China Sea, the Indian Ocean. Uh, and they also have broader concerns with how they manage their own great power relationships. Uh, so how they manage uh, their relations with the United States and with China. So there's sort of three key points that my book uh, discusses. The first is uh, it looks at the strategic culture of the states and how that affects whether or not they're prepared to push back against maritime revisionism uh, in the South China Sea, including in their rhetoric, so what they say and how they um, communicate uh, their position on the South China Sea, but also operationally. So what are they prepared to do in terms of um, naval assertions? And the book finds that that's quite mixed. Uh, Australia and Japan, for example, have been sort of more forthcoming uh, in that arena uh, than, say, South Korea, which has been much more hesitant in, in getting involved in the South China Sea. Uh, the second area is in different conceptions of maritime rules uh, and freedom of navigation. Uh, so it's not the case when, you know, states across the region uh, talk about freedom of navigation, but they might not be talking about the same thing. So they might not have the same interpretation of uh, maritime rules. So uh, probably the, our audience is familiar with freedom of navigation operations that the United States conducts through uh, the South China Sea, but also in lots of other um, strategic waterways to uh, challenge excessive maritime claims. Well, three of the four states that I look at have also been the subject to freedom of navigation operations for a variety of reasons. India, uh, largely to do with um, some rules that it tries to set around um, extending its security jurisdiction out into coastal areas. Uh, for Japan and Korea, there are issues around how they draw their baselines that United States sees as being excessive. Uh, so there's uh, a number, when we think about the like-mindedness, there are these issues um, that, that, that suggest that they're not actually completely aligned and they're not always talking about the same thing. Even a concept uh, like freedom of navigation, you've got the commercial aspects and you've got the military aspects of freedom of navigation. They're often collapsed in the discourse. But if we think about the United States approach to freedom of navigation, it's very much about, you know, what the Navy can do, where the Navy can travel. And the third um, point that, that my book looks at uh, or my monograph looks like uh, is different approaches to maritime order and dispute resolution under the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. And so I use a number of different examples of how these four states have sought to resolve their own maritime disputes. Um, so in some cases, you've got uh, Australia and India have been uh, prepared to shift uh, some policy uh, in order to uh, sort of conform with the international maritime rules-based order, um, but you've got these ongoing disputes in the East China Sea, uh, which suggests that, you know, when it comes to territorial interests, uh, states are still, you know, uh, they don't always look to UNCLOS and dispute resolution processes to um, help them uh, through those issues. So I guess in summary, uh, there is some like-minded tendencies and there are these, um, you know, these states do express an interest in maintaining the rules-based order uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, um, ensuring that there is relative stability in this area. But there are also some important differences that need to be recognised. 
so sort of similar-ish minded, but not not quite so like-minded. Um, what it turned out to Australia in particular, um, and I think the South China Sea disputes are particularly challenging for Canberra, uh, increasingly drawing us, I guess, closer to the dreaded having to choose between China and uh, the US. And of course, they're bringing the geography of competition closer to home. So as the sea becomes a key theatre in Sino-American rivalry, how do you think Australia should approach the dispute? What's your sense of the right mix of kind of military alliance, diplomatic and institutional options um, that, it can, that, that Canberra should seek to deploy? This is a really difficult issue, I think, for, for Australia because there aren't a whole lot of really good options that are immediately apparent. Um, and in fact, I was talking uh, with a colleague earlier today, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, the former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull has just released his autobiography and there's a passage on the South China Sea uh, where you know it sort of discusses um, some of the, the issues around um, how difficult it is to, to kind of, the, there's this pressure um, from the United States to, um, to conduct freedom of navigation or US-style freedom of navigation operations. Um, but from Australia's perspective, that could mean, uh, you know, putting Navy personnel or assets at risk. It could mean um, destabilising or contribute to, contributing to the destabilisation of the region. Or, really importantly for a middle-sized power like Australia, is that it could lead to economic and diplomatic retaliation from Beijing. And that's just like a reality um, for a state like Australia, that they are wedged between, you know, these two great powers. But I think there's a sense in which Australia's uh, operational and declaratory uh, policy hasn't always been matched, hasn't always sort of, there's been a gap uh, between what Australia is willing to say about the South China Sea, but what it's willing to do in the South China Sea. Um, and I've just, I've just uh, been writing about this very issue because I argue that Australia has taken a, a normative approach to the South China Sea. Uh, but it does have to walk that very fine line um, in terms of its relationships with, um, with, with the two great powers. So in terms of the operational declaratory gap, after the 2016 Arbitral Tribunal, uh, you had Australian uh, leaders were quite vocal in their public diplomacy around the rules-based order. I mean, Nick, you yourself uh, with Benjamin Shree wrote an article about this discourse, the rules-based order. It was rather incessant for a little while, the use of the rules-based order phrase. And, uh, you know, I think it's quite um, fair to say that, it, that that's... That, Phrase is a proxy, right? It's used to um, to describe the US-led regional order and is a way of talking about China without always talking about China. Uh, but I think that there's also a sense in which it highlights that that middle or regional powers like Australia uh, really uh, do depend on rules. It, there is a really important kind of, um, you know, leaders in Australia would say right over might imperative at play here. Australia has the world's third largest EZ. We have interests across three oceans, not just the Indo-Pacific, but the Southern Ocean too. 
often gets forgetten, uh, forgotten. Uh, and Australia has a huge maritime zone of responsibility, extending out from the EEZ. It's like a tenth of the world's surface. So the stability and the legitimacy of maritime rules matters for a state like Australia that has a very, you know, a relatively small population at 25 million, but this huge uh, continent and maritime area uh, that it needs to to defend and, and secure. So the question for a state like Australia really is how do you use limited uh, military and political resources in a way that best supports uh, an UNCLOS-led order, uh, whether it's in the South China Sea, but whether it's in other maritime domains as well. Um, and this is where we get into conversations about whether or not Australia should conduct US-style um, phone ops, freedom of navigation operations. This seems to be something that we routinely um, come back to uh, and it's seen as, but by some quarters in, in the Australian public as being that Australia is not doing enough because it's not conducting uh, this style of, um, of, of naval operation. But the problem I think is that our understanding in Australia of what a phone op is, is very narrow. We tend to be talking about transiting within 12 nautical miles of a Chinese artificial island. That tends to be, when we think of a phone op, that's what we're thinking of. And in fact, um, Turnbull's book uh, makes this quite clear. Um, but what Australia has adopted instead, instead of doing that style of operation, uh, it's, can, it's um, focused on operational presence. So there's a very fine distinction that Australian leaders make here. They do FON, they don't do FONOPS, which is a bit, gets a bit confusing. Uh, but what it's basically doing is uh, adopting a routine business as usual approach to operational presence, the sorts of things that um, Australia has always uh, done. Uh, but it has steadily increased these forms of transit uh, through the South China Sea from 2014, indicating uh, the sort of growing importance around um, using uh, naval presence to defend uh, or to, to, to kind of assert uh, freedom of navigation through those seas. Uh, so there's lots of other sort of things that I could talk about here in terms of capacity building, which we might get to later. Capacity building with Southeast Asian states, I think is really important. Diplomatic engagement during the, the code of conduct negotiations. Uh, but I might leave it there. We've got plenty of time to discuss those things and just say um, that uh, one of what Australia wants to avoid is a conflict in the South China Sea where it will have to choose a side. I think that's, um, you know, one of its uh, biggest sort of priorities. Yeah, one thing we might kick around in the questions later is whether the fact that Australia's um, deteriorating relationship with China, where it's in a bad spot now and probably likely to get worse, whether that's going to shift um, Australia's approach to the South China Sea because all of a sudden the side costs of already paying them if you want to put it that way anyway let's um turn to lynn uh so southeast asian states are very much at the front line of all of this um and i think in spite of its name the south china sea is very much a southeast asian sea um but one of the challenges i think is that the differing interests of southeast asian states both claimants and non-claimants um make the management of the issue and the great power rivalry that's exacerbating it much more difficult much more complex um, are these differences a continuing challenge or do you discern any signs of increased Southeast Asian coordination response to this? And I wonder also if you might, in your comments, say a little bit about the role ASEAN is playing in managing the dispute and, and the broader rivalry. Thanks so much for that question, um, Nick. Um, 
I'd also like to just reiterate my thanks to Letro Beja as well as Beck for the invitation to join everyone in this discussion today. It's really a delight to be here. Um, on your question on whether we've seen increased, we are seeing increased coordination amongst uh, the Southeast Asian countries on the South China Sea, I think the short answer to your question is no. I do not see, there's little evidence um, to show that they are increasing um, uh, coordination on uh, the challenges that they face in the South China Sea. Um, but before I kind of unpack that statement, um, I'd like to uh, take a quick, quick look at what's been happening in the region, um, especially since uh, the coronavirus. So one might think that with the coronavirus, we would see um, uh, a lessening of activity perhaps in the South China Sea, but I think we've seen quite the opposite. And in fact, um, activities in the South China Sea have not debated and have arguably intensified. So what are these activities? I think the first thing um, would be um, China's encroachments into the exclusive economic zone, or EEZ, of uh, countries like Indonesia, um, Vietnam, and most recently, Malaysia. So with Vietnam, uh, it conducted survey activities in Vietnam's EEZ, and also sunk a Vietnamese vessel in early April. With Malaysia, um, China sent um, uh, a survey vessel as well, conducted survey activities there, and harassed the West Capella, which um, is, uh, is a vessel that um, the, uh, the Malaysian state oil company Petronas hired to conduct um, survey operations in Malaysia's EEZ. Um, such actions, unfortunately, are in direct contravention of the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea and the 2016 ruling, which clarified that uh, literal states uh, actually are able to enjoy the exclusive economic zone and the sovereign rights and jurisdiction um, that uh, the EEZ vests in them, uh, free from China's, uh, free from any claims made um, through China's 9-9 or uh, any claimed exclusive economic zone from uh, any feature within the Spratlys. So that's the first set of um, activities that China has been engaging in just since you know, this December, January this year. The second set of, of activities that China has been engaging in has been to um, maintain its near constant presence around uh, uh, features occupied by or administered by um, various Southeast Asian countries. So the clearest example of this would be uh, a near constant presence around uh, the largest feature that the Philippines occupies uh, in the Spratlys, uh, namely Tito Island. And this has been continuing since the end of uh, December, 20, uh, tw December 2018. So China has maintained its presence uh, around Tito Island. And the China's activities have not only been limited to literal states um, in the region, but also um, has actually sent warships as well as fighter jets to and around the Taiwan Straits. It's also continued to make objections to various assertions of maritime rights and freedoms uh, by the United States and its allies. Most recently, its Ministry of National Defense quite um, puzzlingly, puzzlingly declared that um, the mere presence of foreign powers was objectionable to China. And so I thought that was pretty uh, worrying. And these objections are inconsistent with uh, maritime rights and freedoms vested under UNCLOS. Um, so, and China actually um, signed up to UNCLOS in 1996. The United States abides by it but as a matter of customary, customary international law and domestic policy. So I think, um, you know, these are just worrying developments. Now, to your question, Nick, what has Southeast Asian um, countries' um, response been? So I've said that they have 
not really, I haven't seen evidence of a coordinated response yet. Um, they've largely responded on a national rather than coordinated basis. So Vietnam has sent um, Coast Guard as well as maritime militia to respond to Chinese survey vessels um, and its Coast Guard in its EEZ. Um, Malaysian government vessels reportedly patrolled, the facts around this are not very clear to me, but um, they patrolled uh, the uh, West Capella, hoping to support it against uh, Chinese harassment. Uh, Malaysia's uh, Minister, Ministry of Foreign Affairs also issued what I found to be a rather mild or weak statement, uh, which did not refer to Chinese uh, survey activities in Malaysia's EEZ nor did it refer to the harassment of the West Capella. What it did refer to, however, was um, the need to adhere to international law, including UNCLOS. Um, but the statement also warned against uh, the presence of warships as well as other vessels in the South China Sea. This, I think, was not only a rebuke um, at China, but also uh, the US uh, naval presence um, in what uh, the US had sent um, several naval vessels to uh, the area around the West Capella. Um, I think Malaysia found this to be unnecessarily escalatory. So it was not appreciative of the United States efforts, unfortunately. Um, Indonesia has taken a far more, a slightly more robust stance uh, towards Chinese incursions. So Chinese vessels accompanied by, Chinese fishing vessels accompanied by Coast Guard have been encroaching into um, we're encroaching upon Indonesia's exclusive economic zone. So Malaysia, uh, Indonesia, excuse me, sent eight warships um, as well as some aircraft to respond to these incursions. So that's reasonably tough, but I think there's little signs that Indonesia is going to be reprising its previous role of uh, you know, leading Southeast Asian countries towards a more common, uh, a stronger united, united front against China. So, all that's to say is that no, no coordinated response. But I think we do, we are beginning to see some signs of progress. How significant this will be, I do not know. But I think one likely unintended consequence of um, Malaysia's submission um, on its extended continental shelf to the United Nations in De uh, December 2019 was that it elicited a response from China, which then in turn um, led various Southeast Asian countries, namely the Philippines, Vietnam, and then Indonesia, to respond to China, the claims that China made within the note of avowal to the United Nations. Now, their responses, I think, uh, made several things clear. First, that all claims in the all maritime claims in the South China Sea need to accord with UNCLOS. Second, that China's claims to uh, rights and jurisdiction in the South China Sea do not uh, accord with UNCLOS. And third, that the uh, tribunal ruling um, in the Philippines case against China in 2016 was or is an authoritative statement of international law. This was made explicit in the statements um, by um, the Philippines as well as Indonesia. Vietnam did not mention it, but I think as Bob Beckman pointed out, um, it was implicit in Vietnam's statement that it too regarded the um, tribunal ruling uh, to be an authoritative statement of international law. So I think even though countries haven't coordinated their response, I think what we are seeing is that at least they are operating under a clear, um, consistent understanding of international law. And um, that, in my mind, is some progress. 
Um, I think you also asked about the role that ASEAN plays. Um, ASEAN's role, I think, in managing the dispute has been fairly limited. Um, the code of conduct negotiations are taking place under its auspices. Um, but I think few uh, would be confident uh, that it will lead to, few are confident that it'll lead to a meaningful uh, code of conduct, um, even if several intractable issues in negotiations are able to be overcome. Nonetheless, these um, negotiations continue because it plays into China's narrative that um, Asian countries are handling Asian security problems without the need for outsiders to uh, get involved. Um, and in the meantime, of course, China is continuing to consolidate its position in the South China Sea. Um, ASEAN countries also go along because, you know, this speaks to ASEAN centrality. They need to be able to be uh, seen to be doing something. And here we are negotiating a code of conduct. Um, so I think for these reasons, I'm not too optimistic about um, the meaningfulness of the code of conduct um, in terms of um, resolving the dispute between ASEAN countries as well as, uh, as well as China. But I think I'm even less optimistic about the code of conduct actually uh, being contributing much to managing the broader geostrategic tensions between China and uh, the United States. Um, I think it's quite clear from China's insistence on um, pursuing its various claims, even during a virus, that it has long-term strategic interests in the South China Sea, um, namely to enhance its strategic depth and reach, um, to protect itself against adversaries, as well as to protect the critical Malacca Straits. And I don't think China is going to be allowing very much to get in the way in, it, in the way of its achievements of these uh, objectives. And just, I want to just probe a little bit um, what you were saying earlier about how the UNCLOS framework is is providing at least a common kind of language, if you like, for some of the Southeast Asian states to approach it. But at, at the end there, um, we've got a sense of the sort of real politic of this, which is, and I was just keen to get your sense as to what's the utility and then what are the limits of international law with this dispute? Because ultimately, you know, this is, this thing sort of fundamentally binds together both the legal procedural but also the sort of power politics of, of Asia's international order. So, and you're very much a, an international law is your, your patch. Uh, what's your sense of the, the utility and the limits of international legal approaches here? Well, um, I think it's quite clear that UNCLOS um, is, is not a silver bullet. Um, that said, I think it, so I think so first of all, why isn't it a silver bullet? Um, I think um, first, it doesn't deal with how to resolve competing claims to sovereignty. So whether country A or country B has a better claim to sovereignty over a land feature, that UNCLOS does not decide. So that's one limitation uh, under UNCLOS. So in the case of the South China Sea, when we're talking about who has sovereignty over particular land features, um, UNCLOS is silent. Uh, the second reason why UNCLOS isn't able to, you know, wave a magic wand and resolve everything is that, you know, it also will, is not going to be doing, any, it's doing very little, it will do very little to resolve the broader strategic rivalry between the United States and China, um, uh, which is playing out in the South China Sea, but also in other arenas, be it trade or technology, etc. 
So um, that's the other area that um, is lacking. And I, I suppose no convention can actually happily govern um, a situation like that. That said, I think UNCLOS plays an important role because it uh, clearly governs uh, disputes over resource rights. And it makes clear that, you know, coupled with the ruling, of course, it makes clear that coastal states enjoy the exclusive economic zone, unencumbered by China's nine dash line, as well as any exclusive economic zone claimed from any feature or group of features in the Spratleys. So that's one area where UNCLOS has helped to kind of limit the dispute. The other area is in clearly setting out um, passage and other freedoms of the seas uh, within the convention. And I know Beck mentioned about how there is uh, a certain degree that there is differing interpretations over some of these uh, provisions. And yes, to a certain extent. However, I think UNCLOS is very clear on some of the main issues that um, are plaguing uh, U.S. Um, relations with China in terms of freedom navigation exercises. And this is first the um, the ability to conduct to to conduct innocent passage through a warship's ability to conduct innocent passage through a territorial sea without prior notification or authorization, and second, the ability uh, to uh, use the exclusive economic zone. Um, sorry, and second, that the exclusive economic zone is a zone which enjoys high sea freedoms save the need to uh, conduct such high sea freedoms with due regard for the e economic rights of coastal states. So I think uh, that's another contribution that UNCLOS makes. And third of all, I think UNCLOS, I think as Beck highlighted earlier, has an extensive dispute resolution mechanism and countries, uh, countries can have recourse to that in resolving their disputes. Um, that, um, so I think that helps. And outside of UNCLOS, I think we should also highlight the, the usefulness of international law in general in terms of its prohibition against the use of force. And I think that becomes immensely important, particularly when tensions between the United States and China are becoming quite um, uh, heightened. So for these reasons, I would say that, you know, UNCLOS and international law more generally play an important role first, because it clearly sets out rights and li limits the scope of legitimate uh, dispute. Second, because it provides uh, the means for peaceful dispute resolution. And third, because it provides a framework within which strategic competition can take place. I think there's no doubt that we're going to see strategic competition between the United States and China continue. The question is whether or not it continues within a rules-based order or completely overturns it and challenges the rules-based order. I think the latter situation will be immensely destabilizing and dangerous. UNCLOS won't save us, but it's going to do a great deal to help, help us save ourselves. So, Excellent. Greg, um, turn to you now. Uh, you're writing a book on the history of the US and the South China Sea, and it was keen to get a sense of, from, um, from your work, how uh, Washington's approach to the South China Sea has evolved over time. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, first, thanks for having me. Um, and I'll preface this with it is early. If I'm not entirely lucid, uh, blame it on the early morning or the lack of coffee. Uh, so, what what I found striking is that if you look back over the the internal debates within Washington, dating back to uh, I mean really the pre-war period, the the list of interests has been pretty consistent. Now the way they've been prioritized has changed wildly, right? Based on how important the South China Sea has been, um, whether or not it's seen as a strictly regional issue or or touching on more global equities. 
but you have this consistent list. One of those is international law of the time. You know, what, what international law of the sea is has changed a lot um, in, in the last seven years, but the U.S. has consistently uh, been a proponent of defending whatever the high seas freedoms are of that day. Second has been uh, a related need to maintain access. So going all the way back to the Japanese declaration of the Shinangunto, the New South Archipelago, there was a lot of concern among the U.S. about being booted out of, of these waters against international law. Uh, and then there is this third issue, which is a, a careful balance between neutrality on the questions of territorial sovereignty, because going all the way back to the 30s, the U.S. felt that nobody had a particularly strong claim here, except arguably the French, uh, with credibility. So remember, from, from 1950 on, basically, the, US, the Spratly Islands were being occupied by three U.S. treaty allies. It was not until 1974 that there was any real sense of a U.S. adversary occupying the Spratly. So for, for most of the post-war period, the U.S. concern was uh, limited to let's keep the ROC, the Philippines, and the South Vietnam from fighting each other because we've got broader equities involved here and the Spratly Islands don't matter that much. It was really only, you look at these, these crystallizing moments, right? So you have... The, like I said, 1939, the pre-war period, we get very worried about the Japanese taking islands that uh, seem to be in, in excess of international law and potentially limiting U.S. freedoms to operate there. Uh, in the post-war period, you have 1956, where the Philippines moves in via Tomas Cloma's claim. Uh, the ROC comes back and occupies Ituaba. The U.S. issues a, a CIA study of the Spratleys for the first time that basically says nobody knows what anybody's claiming here. They're all making it up as they go and we're not going to get involved. Just stay out. And that was the policy for 20 years almost. And then you have 74 and in 1974, China invades the uh, Western Paracels. And there's some really great transcripts of the NSC meetings in which like Henry Kissinger is trying to figure out what the Paracels are and are these the Paracels or are these the Spratleys? And PACOM is the only one who knows what they're talking about. Uh, and they're really caught flat-footed, right? So by the time the by the time they figured out that the Chinese had started the fight, not the Vietnamese, it was too late to do anything about it. But that kicked off this whole new level of of concern, especially in the Philippines, where from '74 to '79 you have the U.S. consumed by negotiations over whether or not the mutual defense treaty with the Philippines applies in the South China Sea, because all of a sudden. You have China enter the fight in, in 74 and then uh, the end of the Vietnam War in 75 and North Vietnam enters the Spratleys. And this, this strange idiosyncratic dispute between U.S. treaty allies suddenly involves two communist powers threatening the last U.S. treaty ally in, in uh, Southeast Asia, in the Philippines. And that largely balances out by 79. It's clear that Vietnam is way too busy with having invaded Cambodia. They don't want to fight with the Philippines. U.S.-China normalization is proceeding pretty well. Everybody calms down. And then it changes again in 88 through the mid-90s, where not only does China move into the Spratly Islands and, uh, you know, relations begin to, to break down. You have Vietnamese normalization with Southeast Asia and entry into ASEAN. And so this realignment of the coalition and then for the U.S. perspective, most importantly, you have China for the first time really making this a fight over water and seabed. Prior to that, it was, there were the Paracel Islands dispute and there was the Spratly Islands dispute. 
by the 80s and especially in the 90s, all of a sudden there's a South China Sea dispute where, you know, at first it was everybody's fighting over seabed resources. And then it became clear that there's not that much seabed resources to worry about. And that faded. And then China comes in in the 90s and starts talking about historic rights, which they borrowed from Taiwanese academics. And then they start talking about in the early negotiations on the first draft of code of conduct, banning foreign military access, uh, banning foreign oil and gas operations, all the stuff that we're now re-debating in the current code of conduct process. So in 95, you have the State Department for the first time issues a statement that says, look, we are neutral on claims. We will not accept a code of conduct that infringes on the rights of third parties which was the U.S.'s way of saying, you can negotiate whatever you want with the Chinese, but ASEAN does not have a right to agree to ban third-party access to the South China Sea. And from my perspective, that has remained pretty consistent over the last 25 years. Now, since 2009, it started to matter a whole lot more, but the U.S. position since at least 1995 has been pretty consistent, right? We're not gonna let, we're not gonna accept the use of force, especially against the Philippines. We're not gonna accept any resolution here that violates U.S. freedom of access to the South China Sea under current international law. Uh, and we don't care who owns what rock. And that's where things stand today, and largely where they stood for most of the last century. All right, I'm just looking at the time. We've got about 20 minutes left. So I think we might turn to, um, to the questions from the audience. Um, and actually, I'll, I'll ask one that goes straight to you, Greg, um, and then we'll work our way through things. Um, so the questions come from someone saying, for China to achieve total dominance over the South China Sea, it would have to militarily engage the United States. So realistically, how likely is such a scenario? So I guess this is, this is getting at the has China won or what would it take for China to quote unquote win? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I don't, I don't think that China has won. I do think that um, on whichever metric you use, uh, the U.S. is losing and Southeast Asian states are losing. Now, whether you want to look at that as a question of international law or access or, or resources, clearly China's winning on all fronts. It still seems unlikely to me that you would have an intentional clash between uh, the PLAN and, and U.S. Navy. We can't discount the possibility of an accidental clash. So, you know, Lynn refers to the standoff uh, with the West Capella earlier this year, the ongoing militia deployments around Titu Island, the, uh, the four months standoff with the Vietnamese last year. You know, at any of these points, you could have an accident in which China's policy that, that basically relies on uh, Coast Guard and militia boats to go out and play chicken with Southeast Asian boats. Eventually, that's going to lead to a loss of life. And if it's a loss of life on the Philippine side in particular, you have the possibility of escalation in which the Filipinos feel a need to respond, the U.S. gets dragged in. So you could have a small contained fight. But I, I would actually argue that the way China intends to control the South China Sea, the way it intends to dominate the South China Sea, is without force, by forcing Southeast Asian states to accept that they have already lost, that China's predominance with Coast Guard and paramilitary forces is such that the South Station should just take whatever bad deals on the table and thereby undermining the credibility of the US or anybody else, Australia, Japan, et cetera, the international community to defend their rights. Okay, so the next question is coming from Gordon Flake uh, in Perth. Hello, Gordon, um, friend, friend, I was to say friend of the podcast. It's not a podcast, but there we go. Um, so is there evidence of claimant states taking advantage of the distraction of COVID-19 
to alter the status quo in the South China Sea. Lynn, you talked a bit about this, so why don't you have a first swing at that? Um, has there been opportunism um, by claimant states under the crisis of COVID, or is it just business as usual? I suspect that a lot of the um, work, um, a lot of what's happening in the South China Sea and the, claim, the part of the claimant states, I think the plans were put in place prior to COVID. So like um, the Philippines and its um, construction on, um, I think it's C2 Island as well, um, I, I suspect that came even before COVID came along and Malaysia's submission uh, to the CLCS, the Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf. I think that as well uh, was uh, long in the making. So I think the executive summary was dated two years prior to its actual submission. Um, so uh, I, I don't think that the opportunism has come um, from the claimant state side. And I also want to say that I suspect that, you know, it's not a situation where China sees COVID and says, ha, I have to do more. I suspect that this is a lot of what's happening, China was intending to do anyway. COVID has merely helped the situation. Um, it made some people think, oh, you know, now maybe the geopolitics will stop, the geostrategic fight will stop. Um, but I think from China's perspective, I think China, you know, had this in mind all along. We see a little bit of escalation in the sense that in the past, China uh, maintained uh, a near constant, but generally low level presence around Luconia Shoals, which is administered by Malaysia. And now um, China has gone a step further by uh, surveying in uh, Malaysia's exclusive economic zone, as well as harassing a vessel um, contracted by Malaysia's uh, state um, oil company. Um, but in general, I think that COVID um, helps, but is not the cause of these activities. Yeah, I see. I see vigorous nodding from Greg and Beck to, to reinforce this one. So, next question um, is from Charlie Brown. That I assume is what well, it could be the person's name. It may not be. Anyway, um, tagged with Charlie Brown. How can countries like the US, Australia, Japan, India, and so on coordinate their capacity building efforts, especially below ministerial levels? What are the priorities? So, Beck, this probably speaks directly to your East West Centre book. Uh yeah, so this is, I guess, one of the, the issues uh, for a non-claimant regional state like Australia or Japan or Korea or India is how do you uh, involve yourself in a dispute or, or, or contribute to defending particular rules and norms and institutions in a dispute that you're not actually, um, you know, a, a claimant to. So uh, one of the ways in which um, these states have sought to do this in various ways is through maritime time security cooperation um, and I would probably argue uh, and I, I'm not sure um, Greg and Lynn might have something to, to contribute on this but I think that this is probably one of the most important ways in which these states can um, can positively contribute to trying to uphold the rules-based order because in the end this is um, you know we talk about the South China Sea uh, in terms of often strategic competition. We've, we've talked about that a lot tonight between the US and China, but it's the Southeast Asian states that are the ones that are, the, are the, the, the ones that are the potential kind of losers out of all of this because uh, they do have uh, these legitimate claims under international law. Uh, and part of the, I guess, um, I agree, I think it was Lynn um, saying that uh, it's not about, um, you know, it's, it's about tr China trying to gain dominance um, 
um, not through the use of force, but through forcing these states into things like joint development. So one of the areas that, um, you know, states can contribute uh, is in in assisting um, Southeast Asian states to build their maritime capacity uh, and to try to kind of defend uh, their claims. But I'm sure Lynn and Greg might have something more to offer about um, how these states can go about doing this. Lynn. Thanks. Um, in, in my view, capacity, capacity building is very important, but I think it's just one element of the bigger picture. Um, I think the single most important thing that countries can do to help to uh, help countries in the region, but also the broader rules-based order, is to offer the region up um, opportunities, economic opportunities, I mean, because the South China Sea is, is but one factor in the broader calculation of these countries. So they might want to push back against excessive Chinese claims, expansive Chinese claims, um, and they will do so, but within limits, because they also want good economic, like Australia, they also want good economic um, relations with uh, China. So I think what we, I would like to see um, is for middle powers to be able to step up to the plate and offer uh, alternatives or complements um, to China's Belt and Road uh, Initiative in terms of you know, offering up countries the opportunity for development, um, whether in infrastructure or after COVID or during COVID it, um, in terms of health systems. Um, so I think uh, that will be critical, I think, to how countries position themselves both outside, but also within the South China Sea. Greg, do you want to add any thoughts at the end? Um, I mean, I, I, I agree with what's been said. Um, I, you know, I think the most important capacity building that uh, partner states provide is, is maritime domain awareness because there's nobody's going to build up the you know Philippine Coast Guard to go toe to toe with the China Coast Guard, but you can at least help the Philippines keep eyes on what's happening, and that's a big part of the messaging here, the ability to name and shame Beijing. But uh, as Lynn indicated, you have to put this capacity building within the basket of larger strategy, and we have to ask ourselves what exactly are you building capacity for? Because all you are doing is helping Southeast Asian states tread water for a little bit longer, right? You are slightly deferring the time at which they are shoved out of the South China Sea. No amount of capacity building, no number of farm ops are going to make a difference over the long term here. This is buying time, and we have to ask buying time for what? Presumably for a large multilateral diplomatic effort, but that has not been evident, at least under the current administration in Washington, and I would argue not very well done under the last one. All right, so let's get to the next one, which is... Um yeah, I've just lost it. There it is. Um, since the 2016 tribunal ruling, uh, China has shifted its approach to the South China Sea away from the Nine Dash Line uh, and to the Forsha strategy. Um, keen to get the panel's comments on this. Um, does anyone want to have a, a first swing at China's shifting approach? I'm happy to start, and then I'm sure Lynn has thoughts too. Yeah, I know. So, I mean, what's been clear from recent uh, disputes, say the, the fishing militia or the fishing um, flotilla off Indonesia last year, uh, or, or the recent standoff with the West Capella, is that the Forsha conception, yes, it, it tries to downplay the talk about the Nine Dash Line. The Nine Dash Line is still there. When you look at the white paper that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs released in 2016, the most recent language in their Commission on Limits of the Continental Shelf uh, note verbals, it is clear that. 
China wants to claim territorial seas and kind of shells from the foreshaw and also historic rights to fill in whatever gaps there still are between the nine-dash line. So the nine-dash line is not being said explicitly as often, but it's still clearly the thing in which historic rights operate. And what this really gets to is the fact that at least since the 1990s, China's claims have been about um, finding legal rationales for the political desire that Beijing already has. China wants to control all the waters and airspace within the nine-dash line, and it will continually recycle new legalistic sounding arguments until one sticks. Beck, um, did you want to quickly come into this? Very quickly, because I know Lynn wants to say something too. I'd also add that, you know, we've got these uh, range of maps appearing in popular culture that have the nine dash line included. And it's kind of a, this is becoming um, something that's, that, that's kind of, out there in the public and it's a form i think of, of maritime territorialization trying to claim the south china sea as a, a part of um of chinese territory um but i'll let lynn <laughs> continue on i think um i i think i agree with greg that um china seems to be emphasizing the four shot claims um a little bit more these days compared to the nine dash line but the nine dash line is still present in a sense, it's in some respects, it's irrelevant whether it's the nine dash line or the four shah claim. Um, both are excessive. Both are claims that China is simply not entitled to. Um, in the case of the nine dash line, the tribunal was pretty clear. I mean, it was it could not have been clearer that it, to the extent that China was claiming historic rights within the nine dash line, this um, was uh, this had been these rights had been extinguished by the entry into force of the convention because of uh, the maritime zones provided for within um, the convention and historic rights would be, historic rights to such a vast expanse of space would be inconsistent with it. So that was clear. What was also clear um, uh, in the tribunal ruling that was that countries that are not archipelagic states cannot then draw um, straight back baselines around groups of features in the South China Sea and then claim maritime zones, both uh, internal waters within those straight baselines, within those features, and then uh, territorial uh, seas uh, beyond those baselines, and then an ease out beyond that. Countries, are not, countries that are not archipelagic states cannot do that. China is not an archipelagic state. It is not entitled to uh, be claiming uh, uh, claiming maritime zones from groups of features in the South China Sea. Now, this, this was made very clear um, from the tribunal ruling. So what is unclear to me is why China bothers. Um, this was something, this was an argument that was made and, uh, and, and dismissed by um, uh, the tribunal, uh, uh, tr uh, the arbitral tribunal. So I, 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 I think China's just trying to fudge, it's like, if not the nine dash line, can I claim a four shark claim? If not four shark claim, can I claim something else? So it's it's trying its luck at various options, and all of them are wrong or invalid. So I I, I simply do not understand um, why they bother. All right, so we've got uh, time for a couple more, I think. Um, so the next one is uh, asking the panel about your thoughts on measures like joint development agreements um, and their role in the dispute. Uh, is the engagement of other claimants possible besides the Philippines? Uh, Beck, do you want to have a first crack at that one? 
Um, yeah, so I think I, I mentioned joint development uh, before. I mean, I think one of the, the issues um, with joint development is that it essentially puts um, smaller states in a position where they have to accept claims made by bigger powers that, as Lynn has just, um, you know, described, these are not legal claims under international law. So um, there's a real question here for, for the smaller Southeast Asian states about what they're prepared to accept uh, in order to access some of these resources, uh, whether they need to access some of these resources like, you know, potential oil and gas in the South China Sea to the extent that they are willing um, to compromise on some of uh, their sort of fundamental entitlements uh, under international law. All right, given the time, we might move on to the next one to try to get through a couple more before we um, have to wrap up. So, uh, Lynn, there's a question directly to you from uh, Sato Yoichiro. Um, he says, hi. Um, can you clarify the nature and source of harassment uh, against the West Capella? I heard the presence was without harassment um, from a Malaysian source. Malaysia has been um, trying to downplay the incident. So, they, I mean, they might well be right. Um, the reports were of harassment of uh, the West Capella um, but of course, it, I, I suppose it might depend on how high your tolerance for um, certain intrusive activities are. If it's very high, as in the case of Malaysia's, perhaps it wasn't harassment. And if it's lower, then, then it was. So um, I think the, what appears to me to be more likely is, uh, given uh, China's previous conduct, including um, in Vietnam's EEZ last year for several months, is that there was some degree of uh, Chinese presence, which might have been intimidating for uh, Malaysia. But as I said, I think Malaysia has sought to play it down. So even I was trying to find out uh, the sort of presence they uh, they they sent out for uh, the presence that Malaysian um, vessels put out, uh, the Malaysian government put out, and I was unable to 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 really clarify. Um, what sort of how, how many vessels they sent out what sort of vessels i mean that was quite difficult as well i think they're very concerned about uh escalating the situation they were not happy as i mentioned earlier about u.s uh, presence even though it was meant to be helpful and to help uh, smaller coastal states defend uh, their economic rights and um and uh generally i think of all the claimant states right now with the exception perhaps of brunei uh, malaysia's position has been the most um well, the least forward-leaning um, of, of, the, of the Southeast Asian states. All right, I think this is probably going to be the last one, um, and it wouldn't be a, a Trove Asia panel if there wasn't a question about the Quad. Um, so questions basically asking, firstly, the broader question around whether the Quad can become some kind of military component to organise against China, and then I guess there's the more specific element of what role a quad might play in the South China Sea disputes. Um, so to begin with the quad reflections, perhaps I'll start with Beck and then Greg and then Lynn, and then we'll probably have to wrap it. So if you keep it relatively brief. Uh, yeah, uh, so I will keep it brief. Um, I have to confess that at this point, I'm a little bit of a, a quad sceptic, not because I don't want to see it to you know, become, um, you know, uh, a, a security uh, grouping um, that can conduct um, exercises together and so on. But just that um, at the moment, it still really exists in the dialogue um, realm. And I'm not really sure at the moment 
um, you know, w what it's going to turn into at this point. But um, there were some um, positive signs for the Quad recently with a, a strategic partnership uh, agreement between India and Australia. And I think that um, really that bilateral relationship, India and Australia, has been something that has um, sort of been an issue for advancing the Quad. So there are some positive signs there, although still no Malabar agreement. <laughs> invitation to Malabar. So I guess uh, I'm a bit on the fence about the quad, a bit wait and see about how that develops. Waiting for Malabar, there's a, there's a East Asian strategic studies play waiting to be written. Greg? Yeah, I think I agree. Um, you know, I, the, the idea of trilateral cooperation of some sort in the South China Sea, I think is going to be, is going to grow, right? So uh, US, Australia, Japan will continue to align more and more on their discussions of freedom of the seas. Uh, I think that you'll even, eventually get back to a more uh, uh, boisterous kind of diplomatic role here, including outside parties like the Brits and the French. The Indian role in the South China Sea is, is less clear. Sometimes Delhi, Delhi runs hot and cold here. And for India, um, the South China Sea is very much a secondary theater. I, if, if India plays a unique role here, I think it's going to be in the India-Vietnam relationship, where whether it's on the mill-to-mill -mill side or diplomatically, India can play a role that the other quad members can't. And I'll just flag that this is something Hanoi really wants. It was interesting that uh, CSIS just published a, a survey of strategic elite opinion in Southeast Asia. And the, one of the most interesting questions to me was everybody in Southeast Asia, when asked what is the most important multilateral forum in Southeast Asia, everybody said ASEAN, except a majority of Vietnamese respondents said the Quad, which is not a Southeast Asian regional organization, but shows how much a lot of thinkers in Hanoi desperately want to internationalize this issue. That's an outstanding finding. Lynn? Um, I think that um, the potential of the Quad is limited both in terms of, well, I think the internal dynamics uh, limits the potential of the Quad. And that is, um, it alludes to what uh, Greg said earlier about India. India has been a very reluctant player in the Quad, especially when it comes to a more uh, militaristic or security bent, um, uh, if, if it's asked to play a more militaristic or security, hard security role. And I think I was speaking to a very senior um, person from the Navy last year, and I had talked about two sets of military exercises in the South China Sea um, in, the, in the middle of last year. And I said, oh, there was one where it would have all the Quad members uh, uh, taking place. Why didn't India take part in that? And he says, well, it's because it's the Quad. So there's a great reluctance, I think, um, uh, on India's part. So I think that would be the, the greatest hurdle that um, would uh, play the, a greater role for, um, for, for the Quad in the South China Sea. I think uh, India's maritime security strategy still places the South China Sea as a secondary uh, theater. Um, the other reason I think that um, it will play a limited role, well, this is not so much a, a descriptive or analytical statement, but it's a normative statement. I don't think it should play a greater role in the South China Sea. And that's because it's the, the Quad is associated with the Indo-Pacific strategy. And a lot of, um, uh, well, some countries are seeking to create greater buy-in to the Indo-Pacific strategy. One region that um, uh, buy-in is, 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 uh, is hoped for is 
ASEAN. And I think ASEAN would be very reluctant for the Quad to play a more militaristic uh, role. And if we look at the ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific, um, although it adopted Indo-Pacific terminology, it also sought to em emphasize the importance of infrastructure development, thereby nodding to China. And it also issued all mention of the Quad um, and replaced it instead with a focus on economic integration as well as greater connectivity in the region. So I think for that reason, uh, a practical reason um, why the Quad won't uh, play a greater role in the South China Sea, as well as a normative reason why it shouldn't play a uh, greater role, I think we are unlikely to see the Quad playing a greater role there. Some, some definitive statements from Lynn. Um, and, and the panel is on the whole Quad skeptic, uh, I would say. So. I'm afraid we're out of time, um, uh, and so to begin to kind of close off, uh, I'd like to thank our panellists, um, Beck, Greg and Lynn, in their respective time zones, uh, for some wonderful contributions and really thoughtful uh, interventions in a really complex uh, debate and, and topic. Um, thank you to the audience who've joined us um, from all over the world. We certainly know there's people from many corners participating. Um, We've recorded this event uh, and if you've registered, we'll be sending the links um, and we'd be very grateful if you could circulate those links through social media and other forms so others can uh, benefit from um, this great discussion. Uh, before we go, I, I need to plug the next event that Latrobe Asia is hosting. Sadly, I won't be part of it, um, which may make it more appealing for some of you. But uh, on the 1st of July at six o'clock uh, in the evening Melbourne time, um, there'll be a webinar on Trump in on the Trump administration's Asia policy, and it marks the launch of the next Latrobe Asia policy brief. Um, the brief is entitled "A More Dangerous Place, Asia During the Trump Presidency," um, and you can actually download that brief already on the Latrobe Asia website. But first of July at six pm. If you're watching this, you'll be emailed about how to register uh, through the normal channels. Um, and finally, uh, is a plea to follow Latrobe Asia on Twitter. We're at Latrobe Asia uh, and join our mailing list to find out more details about online events, publications and more. Um, thanks again for your participation and we look forward to seeing you virtually or in the flesh before too long. Good evening or good morning if you're in Washington, D.C.